On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we talk about Canada's correction system. We've talked about it before, and yet another serial killer who is only less than five years into his sentence for killing four women and sexually assaulting them as he killed them has been moved from a maximum security prison into a medium medium security prison, according to the National Post. How is this even possible? What are we thinking in this country that we're doing this? We'll talk about that. Uh, We're also going to be chatting about the Commonwealth Games. Yesterday, we chatted about why maybe they shouldn't come here because of cost. Well, the CEO of Commonwealth Games Canada joins us to make the case that they should be coming to Hamilton. And Rick Zampern and I chat about the CFL. It's not in season, but they're in the middle of negotiations for a CBA. Is this going to get done? Or are these negotiations going to drag on and on and on and get nasty? All that coming up. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Talking about Cody Legabokov, who is Canada's youngest serial killer. And we're not talking about it because it's just fun to talk about. We're talking about it because as the National Post reported this week, a guy who planned, sexually assaulted, and murdered four women before he was 20 years old, who got four life sentences, has been moved out with less than five years into those sentences, has been moved out moved out of maximum security prison into a medium security institution somewhere in Ontario, but Corrections Canada won't tell anyone where this is or what's going on with this. We're chatting with Joe Wambach, who's the co-founder and executive director of the Canadian Crime Victim Foundation. As I go through the story, and sorry for the long intro, but I think a lot of people probably don't know this case very well. As I go through this, I probably should be a lot more shocked that this is happening, and yet somehow I find myself not all that shocked. Well, you and, and I think most of the victims in Canada who understand the way the system works, the way this industry works, uh, are not shocked. They are, they're terrified, they have nightmares, but they're not shocked because it is happening more and more with greater regularity across this country. One of the statistics that I think your listeners should really be aware of is that we've got close to 4,000 inmates in our federal penitentiaries serving life for the most heinous crimes imaginable, some that you couldn't even speak of without falling ill. And yet, less than 1,600 of them are actually in the penitentiary. So so the 4,000 are supposed to be there, they just aren't. That's right. They're on parole, they're they're back out in the community, and their identities are shrouded, and you, your neighbors, your children, your relatives, and people in our community do not have the right to know where they are. And quite often, their very existence is subsidized through your tax dollars and my tax dollars through Corrections Canada. The, the, the part about this that I find so bizarre, uh, and, and I mean, I don't even know what the right word is. Bizarre makes it sound flippant. It's not flippant, but it, we just had the case not that long ago in Ontario of Terry Lynn McClintock. Everybody remembers that story, Tory Stafford's killer. And that became public and people got really upset. And somehow the government decided in that case that it should change its mind and undo things. So the, the point of that is... This is not something that has to happen. If there is motivation or if people want it to be different, it clearly can be different. People can stay in maximum security if there is some sort of groundswell to make that happen. Without question, and we've got quite a few people like that. Clifford Olson died. Mm -hmm. He is the mass murderer in British Columbia. Paul Bernardo hopefully will die in prison, although I have my doubts. 
Uh, there was a case just recently here in Ontario. The murderer is Nick Bullock. He committed murder. He murdered a 14-year-old boy. He stabbed him 17 times, uh, admitted it to police. It was first degree. He planned it. He executed it. And he was sentenced as uh, to life imprisonment. And he just recently appealed his sentence because the police forgot to read him his chartered rights as a young offender. And they left him sitting in the police station for an hour and a half without being able to talk to his mother, whom I understand was an alcoholic anyways. He appealed that sentence. And the Ontario Court of Appeal granted him a new trial. And the Crown said, you know what, we're not going to go through the expense of a new trial. We'll catch him on the next one. If you can believe it, those are the actual words of the Crown. We'll get him the next time. Yeah, that, that's not reassuring. And Joe, I understand, and I think most people do if they get right down to it, understand that our system is set up under the premise that crimes you commit are crimes against the state rather than the person. That's why we have Crown attorneys that prosecute cases rather than the victims hiring their own lawyers. Still, even with that, this just seems like it's tilted so heavily in favor of the, the perpetrators rather than the sensibilities of the victims here. Well, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, if you become a victim of crime in Canada, you are a citizen without a country. You are not allowed any representation within a criminal trial, and the Crown is not your lawyer. You're absolutely right. They are prosecuting for the state. We, I personally have worked for 15 years, and I wrote the Canadian Victim Bill of Rights. Now, that Canadian Victim Bill of Rights is quasi-judicial, means it will have greater authority than the Canadian Criminal Code. However, judges across this country are routinely <clears throat> rejecting, modifying, and um, uh, changing, altering the victim impact statements that are provided by the victims. Why? Because they may be insulting to the accused. We have a system in Canada that is not a justice system. It's, a, it's an industry. And the industry is self-feeds itself on dragging trials out and dragging trials out to the point where the Supreme Court of Canada, which I must add has absolutely no moral compass, and it is now socially engineering the fabric of Canadian society. Uh, the typical example is a decision that was recently uh, found was the Jordan decision, which was an appeal of a, the Charter Rights Appeal of somebody accused of quite a violent crime, and his crime was not brought before a competent court within 18 months. And so the Supreme Court of Canada has now used this to throw out charges on anyone who has not been brought before a court within 18 months. Now, that's got to frustrate just about every single human being walking the face of this country. Well, as does the fact that, and, and I, all those things, uh, for sure, but this story in particular ties into what the Terry Lynn McClintock one was and what others are, which seems to be that the ultimate end goal, the, the utopian goal of this is a rehabilitation effort. And yet you look at this and you go, but this is someone who hunted and killed four women and who the police say would have continued to do this. I'm not sure that at a, at a certain point in your, when you add up the totality of your crimes, that we should be worried about rehabilitation. For some people, it seems to me they should just be in prison. Without question. I agree with you. And I think there's hundreds of thousands of people in this country that agree with you. However, that's not the way the system works. The system is tilted. And when you become a victim of crime, you, your life virtually has no value. If you wanted to create equality, 
then your life as a victim of a violent crime should have the same value and consideration of those who have taken your life or who have violated the life of a loved one. Unfortunately, it doesn't. You you work with people all the time. You deal with people who are victims, who are victims' families, I suppose, as well. Uh, I'm assuming at some point along the way you've run into a situation kind of like this, where it's someone who... Uh, you find out that they've been released from maximum security or put into a better situation. What's their response? Well, they're absolutely frustrated. Most people are are so devastated that they're they're unable to function in a in a in, in society. A lot of parents of murdered children are unable to work. The divorce rate is ten times the national average. The cancer rate among survivors, parents whose children have been murdered, is four times the national average, and their lives are destroyed. And yet every available resource has been provided for those who are the victimizers. The people who become victims of crime, including the survivors and the families, do not receive any support, psychological, financial, or otherwise, through our federal government. And yet we get it right Occasionally, and, and I mention that because we know that Paul Bernardo just had a, a, ba- a probation or parole hearing, pardon me, uh, I don't know, six months, seven months ago, and he is still in maximum security. And I'm wondering, well, why is he still locked up in maximum security? Is it just about publicity? Is it just because they know that if they ever released him, the outcry would be so unbelievable that it's not worth their while? You're right. And it's an election year, and that plays incredible, important. Uh, 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 stature within what is happening in our country today. It is an election year, and we have a current federal government that is very, very, very soft on crime, and it has providing greater results and greater uh, resources for those who are convicted of a crime than those who are victims of crime. And we see it, it literally every single day in from coast to coast where, where uh, victims' families Fathers, mothers have actually committed suicide because they're unable to deal with the after effects. And parole, you know, that's another question. The corrections candidate is required to notify the families of homicide victims when there is a change in circumstance, but routinely they do not. Joe, we got to run. Sadly, we could do this for a lot longer, and we will. We'll have you back on again soon, I promise. Scott, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much, and be safe. Joe Wambach, the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Canadian Crime Victims Foundation. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Last night on the show here, we chatted about the Commonwealth Games, specifically about whether or not Hamilton should bid for the 100th anniversary Commonwealth Games in 2030. Now, there is some history around this, some precedent around this. Hamilton, of course, is the spot where the games began in 1930. They were the British Empire Games back then. That's where it started. So it would be the 100th anniversary. And while I am a lover of sports, it is what I work, my life is, I write about sports, it is something that I love, I would love to cover games, I do love to cover games, the idea of having them here in Hamilton is something that I would find exciting. I explained last night that I wasn't, I'm not in favor, because I just don't think that we can afford the cost. Plain and simple. Back in September of 2017, when this issue first came before Hamilton City Council, what was being talked about was the cost to do the games would be about $900 million, with the city being responsible for somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 million. Love sports or not, I just didn't think that was, I don't think that that's an amount the city can afford. Now, 
That said, I know that not everybody agrees. And I know that others can make a compelling case for the opposite viewpoint. And one thing that I am always happy to do is have a debate and hear the other side and discuss it and bring it on this show and let the platform play the way it will. Have someone here who can explain that. Well, that's why tonight I want to bring on the CEO of Commonwealth Games Canada, Brian McPherson, to talk about this. He joins me now. Brian, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, I, as I said, my, my, skept, my I don't know, skepticism isn't the right word. My concern about this and my concern about the games revolves around the price that would Hamilton would be forced to pay and would be would be stuck with. But I want to give you the the floor. I want to give you the microphone and take some time and explain, make the case if you if you want, if you can, of why Hamilton would be a good place for the Commonwealth Games to be in twenty thirty. Sure, Scott. Well, I guess from a mindset point of view, we don't view these games as a sporting event. First and foremost, we view these games as a community building opportunity. And that is using the games and using sport as a catalyst to get other things the community has wanted for a long time. Those other things include infrastructure, include civic pride through tourism and branding, and yes, even financial. The last few Commonwealth Games has had a local economic impact of between two and three billion dollars. And that's, uh, that's been validated and verified by third-party independent authorities in those countries and those cities. Um, so an investment of, say, 100 million to get a return through jobs and tax revenues uh, and tourism um, and infrastructure money from higher levels of government sounds to me like a good return on an investment. One hundred million for three billion. Okay, uh, let me go through some of the things, and and I, I know you can answer these questions, but these are some of the ones, some of the questions I have, and some of the questions I think some other people have on this one. Uh, the two thousand eighteen games that were just held in, well, not just, but in the last year, were held in Australia on the Gold Coast. Uh, they cost, we don't know exactly, but I've read anywhere between in Canadian money one point six and two point seven. Billion. That is a large amount of money. And now that said, uh, some of that was government, some of that was private. In Ontario right now, with the government we have and with everyone tightening up, can we find the kind of money that even if it was, let's say, one and a half billion dollars instead of one, can we find that kind of money? Well, the short answer is don't know at this point. Uh, part of the reason for going to council next week is to get their support so that uh, the local bid group, in conjunction with us, can start talks with those provincial and federal government counterparts. But I can say that those levels of government won't look at Hamilton seriously until they get to see a hosting plan. What Hamilton's vision is for the games and for its community in and around the games and its infrastructure needs, uh, games related and not games related. Um, so that work needs to be done first. But I can tell you, that Canada won't submit a bid internationally unless there is a plan like that in place endorsed by all three levels of government and with all three levels of government financial commitments. And would that be something that Hamilton would draw up or would that be something that the Commonwealth Games would draw up with Hamilton or, or for Hamilton? Uh, it would be both of us together, um, particularly when it comes to talking to the provincial government. Uh, we have relationships being a national body uh, with the federal government, but at the end of the day, it's going to be talks with everybody in the room. 
What about the idea, and, and these are these are big amounts when you talk private sector, but what about the idea of private sector money? It does that with these kind of things. Is there substantial private sector money that is out there that could be used for this? Well, for the operations of the games, the, the actual hosting costs, there is private money with respect to raising sponsorships and ticket sales and merchandise. But I think you're probably asking more about infrastructure money and public-private partnerships. Right. The short answer to that is it, it would be uh, facility-specific. You want to build an arena, you want to build a new highway, you want to build an LRT link. Each one of those are different projects with different players and different financial models. I think this is the probably the number one thing that comes up whenever we talk about putting in a bid for multi-sport games or for any games, and that is the the legacy projects that remain behind. The when we had the Pan Am Games, the stadium uh, is now here as a result of that. For a Commonwealth Games, what are we talking about? How how big should we be dreaming or imagining that Hamilton could be benefiting from these kind of things? Well, the first place to start is looking at Hamilton's. Uh, master plan for its infrastructure over the next, say, 10 years. And what is it in those plans existing that they want to achieve, and how can these games uh, uh, get that for them? So so is the thought that it has to be a sports facility, or could you be talking about non-sports things as well? Well, certainly sport facilities are key in order to actually run the competition, but if it was only that, it wouldn't be much of a legacy. It should be more than that, from anything from social housing through an athlete's village for the games uh, to, as I said earlier, roads, convention center, uh, light rail transit links, things like that. You're a guy who's tapped in and and you understand. I, I mean, I'm not telling you anything at this point that you don't already know, but there is a... I would describe as a pretty high level of fatigue in Hamilton right now, just based on the stadium and what happened and how the stadium situation played out. How how do we make sure, if we were going to go for this again, that we don't end up with another situation like the stadium, where rather than a, a, a thing that brings the whole city together, it became a hugely divisive issue in this city? Well, each infrastructure project, as I said earlier, has its own players and its own anomalies, so you have to take each one separately. But I would say this, unlike the Pan Am games, these games would only be Hamilton. Hamilton would be in the driver's seat to make key decisions, nobody else. So it wouldn't be, because the Pan Am games, and again, part of the issue, and you've just touched on, I think, the hot spot of this, is that this was not a Hamilton thing. This was a provincial board, a provincial group that was building the stadium, and it was seemingly out of Hamilton's hands entirely. So this would not be that. This would be something that the city would have a lot more control over. I'm just saying there would be no other city involved, unlike the Pan Am games where there were like eight GTA area municipalities. Mm. Okay. Okay. yeah, because, I mean, there certainly are things in the city. I know people would like a new pool. I know McMaster has talked about a new pool. I, I, yeah, I mean, we certainly have uh, First Ontario Centre that needs upgrades. And, uh, I mean, those. I guess those are all the things we're talking about here, that pretty much anything that needs to be done when you talk about the master plan, anything would be on the table. Correct. And let me give you an example with the Vancouver Whistler Winter Games in 2010. Apart from a number of sport facilities, they listed no less than 60 other infrastructure projects that were done using the games as a catalyst. 
anything from an LRT link from downtown to the airport to a new trade and convention center to much-needed highway improvements to the Sea to Sky Highway to as little as three new weather stations. Hmm. So everything's on the table as long as it's part of a master plan that the city has already a vision for. Brian, one more thing. And look, this this discussion is going to be going on. I know it comes in front of City Council next Wednesday. I, I understand. Now, will you be there on Wednesday at, at Ham, in Hamilton for the City Council meeting? I will be. Okay, so you'll be there. You'll hear all this. And we will. you and I, I guarantee you, will be talking about this again at, at a certain point down the road. Well, I um, hope so. Well, and, and the other one, in addition to the facilities, because, again, that really is a lot of, I think, what either makes or breaks people's thoughts about this is do we get something out of this other than two weeks of fun. Uh, we want something for that kind of money to be here. But the other thing is, and you touched on it a moment ago, is the spinoff money. And that one always seems like it's a, well, a lot of people say, well, okay, how do you substantiate that? How do you substantiate the fact that we say this is worth $2 billion or $3 billion or whatever it would be? Well, it's not for me to say. It's for the experts to say. And I do have documents from Gold Coast, from Glasgow, from Manchester and Melbourne, uh, all of which, after the games were over, used third-party independent auditing firms like Deloitte, for example, who use processes and financial formulas to come up with the return on investment. And they're the experts. They're not part of the games process. So they're independent and they're the ones who came up with those numbers. It is, uh, as I say, it's a topic that we will be talking about here uh, a lot. I know that next week we are going to be chatting with some of the local folks who are behind this as well and get their thoughts on this. Uh, in the meantime, Brian McPherson, CEO of Commonwealth Games Canada. I do appreciate you coming on and talking about this today. Thanks for the time. Well, thank you, Scott. It is, uh, look, make up your make up your mind. Have, start thinking about what you're going to make up your mind. If... And, and I'll put a big if here. My concern, as I said yesterday, as I said at the start of this segment, my concern is the money. My concern is the money from the city of Hamilton. This is a city right now. We are not flush with cash. My concern is the money. If you can make a case to me and to many other people who I think would probably share the same concern, if you can make a case that this city can be bringing in all this money, that this can be a net gain situation for the city, I am absolutely opening to listening and having my opinion changed. I am not locked in on this. Where I am locked in is I don't want this city to end up holding the bag on a huge amount of money that we can't get back. But if you can make the case that we can, as Brian has started to maybe try to do, that we can somehow come out of this thing financially ahead of the game, bring it on. Let's have that conversation. But you'll be hearing more about this. I promise you, next week we're going to have it on here again. We'll be talking about this more. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our good buddy Rick Zamperin from 900 CHML. Sir, how are you today? I am fantastic. How about yourself? I am well. Uh, The reason I wanted to have you on today is a few things, but one of the big ones is we are not in the middle of CFL season by any stretch. We are still months away. The weather's got to get a lot nicer before the football players in this country start playing. However, this week the negotiations began on their collective agreement. They're trying to come up with a new deal between the players and the owners and... Rick, I'm, 
I don't know what's going to happen with this, but I'm reading a piece from the Winnipeg Sun this week under the headline, Get Ready for a Fight in CFL Negotiations. And here's the lead. This could get nasty, maybe a little silly and likely very tiresome. I wouldn't be surprised if it disrupts CFL training camps too, maybe even the start of the regular season. One more line. Beginning Monday, which was a few days ago, the CFL and its players swear off at the bargaining table, and despite all the warm and fuzzy talk of partnership from Commissioner Randy Ambrosi, there's every reason to believe this will be a slugfest. You believe that? Do you think that's where we are with this league, that we are already in March facing the possibility that this thing could get nasty? Well, I think there's always the possibility of nastiness or that slugfest, because whenever you're talking dollars and cents, uh, we know that people, uh, groups, organizations, uh, franchises, owners, leagues, unions, uh, they all want their piece of the pie, and in many cases, rightfully so. So, you know, I'll come at it from the players' uh, standpoint first. You know, this is a, a group that puts their bodies on the line, game in and game out, uh, and they feel, uh, you know, to make a long story short, that they deserve uh, a bigger piece of the pie, knowing that, uh, you know, the season is still 18 games long, and I know there has been conversations about cutting, you know, the, the, the length of the weeks in terms of the CFL season down. That hasn't happened. Um, uh, you know, concussions continue to be a factor. Uh, you know, Jonathan Hefney is probably the, uh, I hate to say it, but, you know, the poster boy for the union's mentality in terms of protecting their players. Here was an individual who was maybe not a superstar in the league, but, you know, at one point a, a very effective player in the league, where he suffered a debilitating injury and could a not get back on the football field and maybe more importantly just could not get back to being healthy because he couldn't afford the medical bills and the union could only do so much and the league was not uh, in a position to say all right we're going to give you an extra uh, you know x amount of dollars to recover from your injury so the union, the, the CFL Players Association, is coming at this thinking, you know, we need more resources, we need more money, we need more for our players. From an ownership and league standpoint, obviously, they, they're running the business. And the employees of their business are the players. So they you know, want to pay uh, many of their players fairly, but they can't do so across the board with uh, injuries and expanding rosters because of those injuries. Uh, compounding the problem of cash flow, uh, you know, CFL owners are thinking, you know, we have to get the biggest bang for our buck. So we're going to give you some money, but not everything that you ask for, because we have to protect our assets and the league as a whole as well. So whenever money is involved and both sides wanting what they want, yeah, there's always a possibility of a breakdown, a work stoppage, whatever you want to call it. There are a couple big, big issues, though, that factor into this particular CBA discussion that I don't think have been... Well, one of them has sort of been around, but one of them for sure. Um, The first thing is that the players apparently this time, because of what you just talked about, injuries and all that kind of thing, apparently the players are going after guaranteed contracts. Right now, if you're a CFL, up until, what is it, week nine... Uh, of the season, you can be cut if you're a veteran, and I think it's probably after that if you're not. They can just say, you know what, we're done with you. We found someone else who's cheaper, who's better, whatever, and you're you're out, and there's no, and you don't get a, you're you're not paid for that. And and they're now saying, that's we're not okay with that. If you sign me, I expect to be paid at least through the year. Yeah, and you know what, they're looking at uh, NFL contracts to a degree. I mean, no one in the CFL is going to be making millions upon millions of dollars, but what they are looking at in the NFL is 
uh, you know, the guaranteed portion of a contract. So, for instance, an example, a player would sign a you know, five-year deal worth $50 million, and $30 million of that $50 million is guaranteed. So if they get hurt, if they get cut, whatever the case is, if they're no longer employed by that team, they're still going to get that $30 million. They're not going to get the entire $50 million that was promised over the five years, but they're going to get that guaranteed portion. So CFL players are looking at saying, why can't we have a portion of our contract? If I'm signing a two-year deal worth $100,000, why can't at least 50000 half of that, or whatever the case is, be guaranteed? So, yeah, if I'm cut, whether it's before or after Labor Day or not, I'm still going to get that portion uh, that, that is owed to me, that is guaranteed to me in my bank account. The other part of this that becomes very interesting this year with what you talk about, how the owners want to make their money, uh, there are there is one and a second one is coming, new leagues that is competition for the CFL. The um, AAF is currently in place down in the States and you've got the XFL starting. We don't know about the long-term possibilities for either, but both are apparently offering we're going to be offering more money in salaries and contracts in the CFL. If you want players to keep coming here, uh, do, do, do the owners, are they not on the spot to, I don't know, to, to, to say we're going to be competitive with that money? The, the one position I think that the owners are going to take in this regard is there's always going to be someone around who's not going to be playing in the XFL, who's not going to be playing in the AAF, who still wants to play football. And this is going to be that league um yeah i think these two leagues especially if the xfl you know kicks off the ground is going to lead to a watered down in terms of the american content a watered down canadian football league and it might give some extra opportunities for, you know for a few canadian players here and there which would be fantastic but when you are slicing the pie so many ways you know the nfl gets some of the best or not the best football players you have the aaf the xfl the cfl all now going towards uh, the, the leftovers, so to speak, uh, you know, the owners, you know, if they don't increase salaries, um, are they still going to attract those American players who might still have that NFL dream and might not be good enough to make it in that league, but they'll still look at these two other leagues to say, okay, this is an option closer to home, tax situations better. The CFL might have to ante up a little bit, although I don't think it's going to happen because when I you know, revert to my previous comments, there's always going to be someone around who's not going to be able to crack the rosters anywhere down south, and they'll say, I still want to play, let's go to the CFL. But doesn't that leave you, and I, I think you're right, Rick, I think that that's going to be probably the position the owners are going to take, but doesn't that then leave you that you may be the guys getting the leftovers of the leftovers. And, yeah. I, and I don't know that that m- helps your league. I, I mean, I don't know that that makes your league better. At that point, you're almost as well to say, you know, we're just going to go all Canadian here. Let, let's really be different. Let's just go all Canadian rather than taking the real residue. Well, yeah, you know what? If the, if the AAF, I mean, and the jury's still out in whether this is going to be successful. 100%. Or not, especially financially, and the XFL. So let's just say that these two leagues, in the U.S. are going to be a success. They're going to be around for the next five to ten years. The NFL is still, you know, the monolith of you know, pro sports. The CFL will be the, you know, like the Netflix series, the last chance, even the last hmm. chance league. If you don't make it to the NFL, you're not in the AAF, you're not in the XFL, uh, you're not good enough to play in any of those leagues, you're going to say, okay, I'll, I'll go make a living in the, in the Canadian Football League. And, yeah, as I said, it's going to lead to a watered-down American talent pool. There's no doubt about it. That's just, you know, simple math. Um, but I, I think the owners 
are thinking to themselves, we probably don't have to pay these guys anything extra. They're, they're, they want to play the sport because they love the sport, and they'll come up here regardless. So let me put you on the spot here. It, let us say that somebody decides they want to go with a short-term CBA here in the CFL because one side or the other, either the owners or the players, the owners are betting that the two leagues south of the border are going to fail and fail quickly, and the players are betting that they're going to succeed potentially, and if we go with, let's say, a year or a two-year CBA, depending which side you're on, if you're the owners, you go, we can remove the competition and don't have to give them any more if we just sign for two, or the players say, no, they're going to really catch on, and in two years, we're going to have to, they're going to have to really fork out to keep the players. Which, which side would you bet on? Which would you rather be on, owners or players, if that was the argument? Do you yeah, think I- these other leagues are going to work? I would definitely want to be on the owner's side because if they say, hey, let's sign a two-year bridge deal, uh, because I think it would be more advantageous to the owners because odds are these two leagues in the States are not going to be around in five to ten years. So say it is a two-year CBA and the AAF only lasts two years, uh, they're going to get that talent pool of players. And, and if the XFL never gets off the ground or isn't a success, they're going to get those players as well. But from a, from a union standpoint, from a CFL Players Association standpoint, their you know sole purpose is to protect their members so i don't i don't necessarily think that they're thinking about those american players who are not in the league yet i just think they're trying to get the best deal possible yes going forward but for the membership right now as well but those leagues are leverage as long as they exist those yeah. leagues are leverage for the players without a doubt yeah because they know that uh, you know the solomon elementians of the world the mike rileys the bolivian mitchells are in the Canadian Football League for a reason, and if they had an opportunity to go to these other two leagues before even thinking about the CFL, we may never have seen them in this league. Well, even now, I mean, Bo Levi Mitchell has just signed with Calgary to stay there, but if Bo Levi Mitchell had been offered, I don't know what kind of number they can do, but let's say they offered him $1.5 million a season to go to the AAF, do you think for a second that he would have re-signed with Calgary? Not a chance. And and, no beca- and he'll look at it because I'll take my 1.5, and then if it doesn't work out in the AAF, you know what? I can always come back to the CFL. They'll take me back. And yeah. he's right. And in, the me- and in the meantime, I've made X amount of dollars and way more than what I would ever have made in the, in the CFL. Yeah, it is It is definitely a tough one. It's going to be interesting to see where this goes. If if this column is right, if, if Paul Friesen from the um, Winnipeg Sun is correct that this thing is going to get nasty, um, keep your eyes open because it's not you. I mean, the listeners, like you, I know you'll have your eyes open, but I mean, it, it's just, it's an interesting one to see where this goes because for the first time in a long time, there is competition for these leftover non NFL players. And it'll be interesting to see what that does. Uh, okay. I want to jump to something else before I let you go. I got a few minutes on this one. Yeah. I don't know if you heard the story from this week, Russell Westbrook, one of the best players in the NBA gets into it with a fan in Utah. He, and, and a fan and his wife, and it was pretty nasty. And, um, it, Really, and no one, it seems, is upset at Russell Westbrook for giving it back to them, which tells you just how interesting the go-to with the fan was. When you go to a game, everybody always says, you pay your your ticket, you buy your ticket, you're entitled to have your say, and you're entitled to boo, or you're entitled to whatever. Where is the line, Rick? If you're a fan at a game, where is that line at which someone says, you know what, no, that's 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 too far? Well, I think the the line was met in this case because from what I hear that there was derogatory, racist, uh, really vile comments from the fan uh, and possibly his wife as well. And, and they claim that Westbrook delivered the same kind of comments to them. 
Uh, I know he's been fined by the league, which I think is just an automatic thing. But, you know, for me, I understand the sentiment or, or maybe even the entitlement of fans that, hey, I've paid my tickets, I have my season seat, I've, I've paid my dues. Uh, you know, I have the right to say what I want to say or feel that I have to say in, in, in certain aspects because I'm the fan. I'm paying this person's salary at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, when it comes to, you know, those personal, especially racist or homophobic attacks, then that is a solid line for me. You should never cross that if you're a fan or a player. That's just a no-go zone for me. I don't, I'm not sure I understand the fans' perspective on this one because I get booing. I understand booing, and I think that booing is totally within the realm of your right as a fan. I, I don't understand why you go to a game, even for a visiting player, and try to pick the try to pick at a particular player. You know, a clever taunt is fine if you're going to do it. It's something that that makes people laugh. That 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 may be just really I don't know unique or as I say creative. But I just I, I don't understand why you would go to a game and do this. I just don't get it. Yeah, you know what? If you want if you want to chirp a player or kind of get under his skin in a creative or kind of funny way. Uh, I, I think that's fine. I think that's something that the players, I'm not sure if they feed off it because they really don't hear it, but once in a while, if a hockey player is sitting on a bench and you're kind of chirping them from, from the stands, they might hear that. They might even chuckle themselves if it's really you know, creative and good. But I mean, at the end of the day, the, these pro athletes, for the most part, most of them are tuning out what is being said in the crowd. So really, you're, you're just wasting a breath for the most part. But you know, in this incident, obviously, you know, these, these two individuals are face-to-face and uh, you know the, the, the close proximity of basketball kind of lends itself to this, um, but yeah, as I said, I mean th- this really went over the line for me. I, I always think of the Ty Domi store uh, situation in Philadelphia, <laughs> and now the fan and people will remember this: the guy who fell into the penalty box. The guy wasn't trying to get into the penalty box. I don't think it was the glass that gave out under him. He was a rather corpulent dude, um, which is a nice way of saying he was tubby. But uh, the glass just couldn't support his weight, but. But even then, I mean, if you're going to try to that angrily and that much get into the face of one of the athletes rather than something clever or lighthearted or whatever, I, um, I you know what? I, I don't get why you're going. I, I don't get what you think your role with this team. I mean, I guess some people feel like they're really helping their team by getting under the skin or going after the opponent. I, I, it's something I just don't understand. I, the other one, the flip side of that, Rick, is in, I can't remember who they were playing, but remember the two guys who wear the green bodysuits that cheer for the Canucks? Yes. And there was one, it might have been Sidney Crosby or someone, they decided when he was in the penalty box to you know, do mime things and silly, and it wasn't offensive, it was just, it was ridiculous, but it was funny, and even the player was laughing about it. Yeah, that stuff, you know, is kind of cool, and it it, it has a time span to it, uh, and, and and obviously can't live forever. But you know, at the end of the day, I think fans, you know, yeah, have a right to boo and cheer. But when it gets personal, I think it's it's a little it's a little overboard. I simply don't understand. There was one other one this week because a player in England ran onto the field and slugged a player oh, in yeah. soccer. And now he's been banned for well for ten years. Weeks, yeah, yeah, for well, I think it was for ten years they finally gave it to him. But oh, yeah, he's in jail for a few weeks. Yeah, but he's yeah, he's in jail. Yeah. Why though? If you are one of those idiot fans, why are the teams not banning you for life? It's not like if we get rid of you that somehow the entire financial model of our team is going to collapse. Seems yeah. to me that if you were one of those real idiot fans. And the team said, "I'm sorry, you're gone. Don't ever come back." The fan, the other fans would actually appreciate that. 
without a doubt. And any, you know, anyone who runs onto a football field, I think, should just be banned for life. I mean, what kind of rehabilitation are you going to go through to guarantee that you're not going to do it again? And we all know that alcohol is always a factor in these regards. But still, I mean, you should have the wherewithal to say, no, this is a this is a wrong move. I should not be doing this. And usually it doesn't end well anyway. Well, either ban them for life when they run on a field or, or do you remember the guy who a few years ago in a, might have been a Boston Bruins or a New York Rangers game, the streaker who jumped over the glass and when he hit the ice, his feet slipped out from under him and he smashed his head on the ice and he knocked himself out cold? Yes. Lying... Face up, on the ice, buck naked, unconscious. See, to me, you don't ban that guy for life. You show that picture on the scoreboard every single game. (laughs) With a reminder of don't throw anything on the ice or get on the ice. The shame (laughs) would be way better than the ban. I'm I'm all for if not for things that aren't your fault, but if you do something that deserves it, I'm all for the public shaming if it will stop other people from doing the same. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Rick Zamprin, 900 CHML. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this, sir. Anytime. Have a good one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Will's story of the day. Will is in today. Will's the guy who's playing the music. He's behind the glass in the operator side of the booth here. Going to bring Will on here. What we do is I'm going to give Will three stories from around the world, all true, all unusual, And based on whatever it is that he chooses, whatever tickles his fancy or any other part of his body, and by the way, there is glass between us. I can't tickle any part of his body, which is the safest way and the best way. I wouldn't anyway. But whatever tickles his fancy is what he decides is going to be Will's story of the day. So here we go. Story number one comes to us from Connecticut, uh, the town of Fairhaven, Connecticut, where as a fundraiser, they elected a new mayor that happened to be a goat. The goat won the election. Now, was it rigged? I don't know. Well, probably not rigged, although I'm sure a lot of people who voted in this said, hey, it'd be really funny to have a goat, which would be really, I would think, insulting to the people who ran that you lost to a goat. Anyway, bigger problems from electing a goat than just having a goat as a mayor. Namely, the goat was... um, Well, the goat didn't want to leave its field, first of all. It was quite happy in the farm where it was, but they dragged it into the town, marched it into the mayor's office, and during the swearing-in process, which, by the way, they couldn't really figure out how to swear in a goat, so they put an ink pad on the ground, put it on its hoof, and then made it step on a thing to say that it was going to be the mayor. Um, The goat expressed its displeasure with the entire operation, by promptly defecating all over the mayor's office. Well, that caught the message across. At least we know this goat is a clear communicator. Yes, and and probably that was more clear than what most of the politicians in that town have done over the years. Anyway. I hope so. If if, uh, this was, uh, you hope anyway, this is the first time a politician has ever pooped in his office or her office in this town, or in frankly any town. But yes, the uh, the goat was then packaged up and sent back to the farm to as- assume, I think it's his, duties from the safety of his pen, no. where, where pooping <laughs> is not a political statement, it is just a fact of life. That poor goat. Uh, Scott, you said this was a fundraiser? Do they say how and why no, and what? No, okay, it's just a fundraiser for something. 
and uh, and he just the goat was not all that much into it. Clearly, uh, story number two comes from uh, New York. Where in New York? In oh, in, in well, in New York City, uh, in Astoria, guy who owns a six hundred square foot apartment, not a very big apartment, six hundred square feet. I mean, it's one bedroom. Actually, it's a studio apartment, so it probably doesn't even have a bedroom. It's just the bed is right in the the body of the apartment. 600 square feet. Anyway, his name is Tony Straub. Tony was a little surprised when he received his utility bill for last month. 600 square feet. Now, I don't know how warm Tony keeps it in his apartment or how much in the way of appliances he's using. But, uh, but his, uh, his utility bill showed up as... $37 million. <laughs> I have heard prices in New York are rather high, but... The problem with this story, the funny part of this story, is, okay, anyone can have a utility bill that's due to a typo could go horribly haywire. I mean, you know, that that yeah. could happen. Comma, uh, it's not, though. You probably should not have to spend a long time arguing with the folks at the Hydro at the utility to fix your bill when it's $37 million. <laughs> Yet apparently he had quite a time getting them to adjust his bill, he says. Like you would think if you call up to the utility and say, I just got my bill. It's $37 million. They go, oh, sir, I'm sorry. Clear. No, no. Apparently Tony had to put in quite an argument to convince him that his bill was not $37 million. They have. They've done it. That seems like it's excessive that you would make a guy have to go to to fight to fix that bill. Uh, Story number three is from Australia. The story's a little complicated, but a guy was outside his house in Australia. doesn't say if it was urban or rural Australia. doesn't really matter, I suppose. But the guy was outside his house, and for some reason, there was another lunatic outside who was carrying a bow and arrow. Okay acting weirdly, acting very strangely to the point where this person decided he'd better start to film this, what was going on, because he was concerned that something horrible was going to happen. Well, it did. Hmm. The guy with the bow and arrow saw the person videotaping him and became incredibly aggressive, pulled back the bow and fired the arrow at the guy there's pictures, the arrow went through his cell phone and stopped inches from his face. The cell phone saved the guy's life. There are pictures here of the arrow through the cell phone. The armed man was later arrested at the scene. Happened in the New South Wales town of Nimbin, 180 miles south of Brisbane. The pair were not known to each other. The 39-year-old was charged with assault and property damage offenses. How about attempted murder? He fired an arrow at a guy's head. Yeah, I... Stopped by a phone. <laughs> if not for the phone. See, phones have multi-purposes now. So, is your story of the day the goat who pooped when he became mayor? Is it the guy with a $37 million utility bill? Or is it the Australian guy whose phone saved his life from a bow and arrow shooting madman? I think whatever type of phone that was, uh, they have a new advertising campaign. But I have to go with the greatest mayor of all time, the goat. Poopy the goat is now our winner for Will's story of the day. There you go. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.